this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Book Riot's new subscription service, Tailored Book Recommendations, or TBR. TBR is for readers of all stripes. If you've been dreaming of a stitch fix for books, well, now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for, and then just sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans that let you receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations only by email, so there's an option for every budget and plans start at just $15. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 299. We're recording on Thursday, February 17th, 2019. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We got a wild assortment of stories this week. So many things happened. (laughs) (laughs) Follow-up, weird follow-up, weird news stories, uh, just a... Just a really kind of wacky week in the world of books and reading, I have to say. It is Thursday, and I have felt like it should have been Friday since like Monday afternoon. It has been a week. (laughs) You know, we haven't, we're not going to talk about this show, and I'm not sure we will, though I have to say we might need to think about talking about it. The um, Blood Air, there's a piece in the New York Times about this YA book that got pulled, um, but there was a big story in the New York Times today about a couple other people that also got. Twitter backlash, mm. and now it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole thing now that's going on. Um, so some of you have, have asked us if we were going to talk about it. We, we kind of didn't want to uh, for a couple reasons. One is we didn't, there was some stuff that happened on Twitter about, you know, accusations that I sort of tend to believe, but there weren't proof of. It got a little nasty, but I think we're at the point now, there's been public statements by the author. The book is being pulled. She's got statements of ports from her publisher. There's this other piece in the Times. Like, it's a thing now. Like, it it's a thing. thing. So, anyway, I, I didn't talk to you, Rebecca, before this uh, about this, but I think we'll have to, like, maybe by next week, this New York Times article just published this morning. So, I, I looked at it very briefly. Yeah. So, I didn't really have time, have but to, I think we'll have to talk about it in the future. I'm going to have to um, study up, because we do have a we have a shared policy of not talking about anything that just amounts to an online spat. And that's what this looked yes. like at first, but it has risen beyond the level of spat into yes. it's a something burger. Uh, and yeah, I think I need, we need to get caught up and, mm-hmm. and then we will have things to say about it, but yeah, that's coming. <laughs> and there's some, I think even outside the details of this case, I think there's some interesting meta level stuff to talk about just mm-hmm. where we are in publishing and publicity and online media stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, is it as bad as people say, is it worse? Is it better? It's, it's, is that part well, I think is interesting yeah. that has emerged out of the, this particular author, this particular story. There's some confounding factors too about the identities of various people involved and accusations and behavior outside of representation, yeah. the book that got pulled. You know, it's, so it's just a, it's, it's a real messy week. It's just it messy. Is, it Everything is, is messy. It, it is a week. real it's just messes on messes this week. And the the idea of books getting pulled because of online controversies also ties into a big old messy story yes. that we're going to talk about later. And I think it's really interesting what makes publishers decide or not to pull a book right. and, and sort of the differential in the way that values are applied in the making of right. those decisions. <laughs> So anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes to the story we'll probably get to next week if anyone wants to do their homework, pre-work, homework, whatever they want to do. Um, so there's that. Let's do our first sponsor because we, we've got a lot of messes all over the place that we need to get to, except that I'm not logged into my thing. So why don't we... <laughs> I will take this we'll one. Go. You want to switch yeah, up? Take the read real quick. We'll switch it up. We'll switch it up. All right. Our yeah, sponsor, our first sponsor this week is Book Clubbish, bookclubbish.com. 
This is a great year for suspense, 2019 is, and Book Clubbish is your go-to destination to find your next great read. 2019 has some truly spine-tingling suspense novels to sink your teeth into. They have everything from exciting debut authors to new releases from best-selling authors. These suspense titles will take readers to new, unexpected places and hit you with more twists and turns than you'll ever see coming. You will never be without a book this year, given Book Clubbish's incredible lineup features New York Times best-selling authors Christina Dodd, Mary Kubica, Heather Graham, and Kat Martin, who all have new books coming this year, and they are not to be wit- missed. And if you're looking for the next woman in the window, find your next great suspense read on bookclubbish.com. For a complete list of their 2019 thrills and chills, go to bookclubbish.com now. All right. All right. So I got listener feedback. So this is coming in hot a little bit because you, you haven't been mm-hmm. prepped for any of this besides some bullet points. So Bobbins, you may remember, we're going to get the story in a minute. Yep. Maybe we'll, we'll trans, transition right to it after we get through this little feedback. That is the name um, that, uh, what's the guy's name? This guy that was going to open uh, Ancient Loreland was Someone going Boyd. to. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, notice the tense on that. <laughs> That's what we call foreshadowing in the business. Was going to name the, the, the not hobbits Bobbins. We had a listener write in um, saying, the first thing she thought of, and we are children of the late 80s and early 90s, many of you out there also as well may remember the, the Val Kilmer Warwick Davis vehicle, Willow. Oh, yes. Um, in which the Will, uh, Warwick Davis's kids were called Bobbins. Huh. So there's, there's ancient lore precedent for Bobbins. <laughs> um, also, trademark violation. You can't even get away from it here. Uh, possibly copyright for mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, copyright um, Universal Studios uh, 1991 or whatever that was. But I am ashamed of myself as a secret. F- I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but I like that movie. Oh, and yes. liked it when I was a kid and think of it fondly in all its absurdity. You know, it, I'm surprised I didn't remember that. It one. didn't even occur to me to think of Willow in that context because I was just stuck on Hobbits. Um, yes, right. <laughs> but yes. Just steal from all the people. Why not? I mean, if yeah, you're going to appropriate, you should just appropriate <laughs> widely and with reckless abandon. And it, and it has to be said that probably um, Bobbins, chosen by the makers of Willow, is also probably referring to the Hobbit. To Hob- I mean, it's all it's all it's uh, Hobbits all the way down. Well, you know, Jeff, uh, really ancient lore is it's an iterative <laughs> art. <laughs> ancient lore referring to a 14 year old movie. <laughs> <laughs> Iterations uh, of Ancient Lore is my new podcast. Look for it on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Subscribe now. We have a Patreon. Um, okay, so also we were talking about, um, I guess a couple of these go together. A lot of feedback from my car sick. Uh, Everybody uh, apparently sisters. gets car sick. <laughs> Reading as kids and long trips, a, a common and shared, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, experience. Um, of being disappointed, queasy, and frustrated on, <laughs> on your road trips to Ohio or Colorado or Florida. Lots of stories there. Motion sick is an interesting thing. Uh, I, I'm very, very much plagued by it myself. A lot of stories of I was motion sick when I was a kid and now I'm not. I wasn't and now I am. What I think we need here is a full-scale investigation to what's going on. <laughs> I don't, you know, like, what's going on with this car sickness? Why don't we have uh, startups that'll take your DNA <laughs> test and tell you how to fix your car sickness? Could be Elizabeth Bad Holmes' blood, next big sickness. adventure. Yeah, Elizabeth Holmes, there it is, right there. <laughs> so that. Um, oh, this other, this other, the number five feedback I'm going to save because it relates to a story mm-hmm. we haven't yet discussed. Uh, we got a nice email from a lawyer who is being very self-conscious about her lawyerness okay. and trying not to lawyer-splain me. And she did a wonderful job about libel and slander and the whole mess. We didn't get anything specifically wrong. I think a couple pieces that were worth hitting again. Mm. One is the, the truth is absolutely a defense in a defamation case. So um, Asher cannot, in this case, say that the investigation they ran was bad. Because they just said they had an investigation. You, that's not that's not really what's going on. That would be breach of contract or something else okay. to say you didn't go by the policy, mm-hmm. right? If they say they ran an investigation, if it was two emails asking people, technically that's true that they had an investigation okay. of some kind. And I think this is one someone something you also got from a different source about public versus private figures mm-hmm. is that the standard the burden of proof is higher on a plaintiff. So on Asher's case would be higher. 
if he's considered a public figure. Now, is Asher a public figure? There's some debate about whether or not he is or could be argued that he's not. I mean, to my mind, if you're giving paid speaking engagements and appearing on panels at industry events, you're a public figure, but there's some line of thought that really you have to be... If there's any doubt you're a public figure, then you're not, right? There's one of those kinds of smell Interesting. tests. Interesting. Like, you clearly a senator, uh, you know, a, a, a federal senator is a public figure. Is a person holding an elect... Is your state comptroller a public figure? I, there's no strict standard as far as I can tell for what that is. But I think you could make a case that Asher is a public figure. Um, mm-hmm. You could make a case, I think, that he isn't. How that would go... It's pretty interesting to me there. Um, the maliciousness, like, if if something, there's also an interesting, it doesn't have to be malicious if you can peg damages to it. So if you just screwed something up and it cost someone money, it doesn't necessarily have to have been malicious to be guilty of defamation. Um, you only can really get compensation for non-malicious defamation if you can prove material mm, harm like mm-hmm. you lost a book contract or something like or that. Or your agent dropped um, you. Yeah, or you know the, and you can assign a dollar about. But if someone says something nasty about me online and it didn't really cause me any damage, it really has to be malicious. Or someone said something false about me online, mm-hmm. I should say. And it doesn't cause me any damage, I don't really have a defamation case because it. it didn't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Right? Unless it's malicious, unless you're trying to hurt, unless my feelings are hurt, right? right? I mean, which literally that's is it. So it kind of interesting stuff going on here. I'm not sure without, again, we're to the point with this story and we'll, we'll get to it here in a minute. Um, where without knowing more, we can't really say more. Yeah. I think. There's, so there was a long piece by Lila Shapiro this week in Vulture um, that investigates really what's going on with the Jay Asher yeah. situation and really the most damning part of it, I think, comes back not on to not just onto Jay Asher, but also onto Lynn Oliver at SCBWI, which is the revelation that before all of mm-hmm. this stuff became public about the allegations against Asher for having had affairs with multiple women at SCBWI and harassing them or, you know, using influence or intimidation. Um Lynn Oliver, when she was first notified of some of these allegations, um, contacted Asher and his agent, and they basically made like a backroom deal about it, Um, that the solution was that Asher would no longer attend the conference as a guest speaker, um, and they weren't going to make anything public about why. It was just going to be like, look, we heard this about you. Um, Asher admitted that he had had affairs. And so Asher, Lynn Oliver, and Asher's agent agreed that the solution was he just would not come to SCBWI to be a guest speaker. Um, The agent Mm -hmm. liked the solution, wrote Oliver a few days later to praise how she handled it. But then when the women who had made the allegations against Asher received news that this is how it was being handled, they were not satisfied by the solution. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's when the women made a bigger deal of this. Um, So that like the back room trying to like prevent the person being accused of the thing from having to like face it or making a thing of it i under i both understand why it would be tempting but it's also not a super great look um Mm -hmm. and i also understand why the women who are making these allegations against him were not satisfied by that solution but that's really the only new piece of information um big new piece of information from this vulture article yeah, it's a good piece because it it's complicated. Lila, who I interviewed as part of an annotated episode, I should say, on uh, Handbook for Mortals, um, that Tommy Laren, I mean, talk about also messy, mm-hmm. just messiness all the way down again, um, does a nice job, not overstating what she knows, but also bringing to bear that there is this other piece of this story. And I think she, she hangs a lantern on something we talked about last week of like, this is tough to deal with. And she says, you know, was Oliver serving her members best when she settled the matter discreetly back in 2017? Or did they have a right to know why it left the organization? And, you know, not trying not to get sued. But in 2019, we are a tolerance for these handshake, wink, nod, everyone keep quiet, but also move on. We mm-hmm. have less um, nothing to see here. Appetite. Yeah. yeah, less appetite for this sort of thing. Um, she does say that there's in California where this lawsuit has been filed. It's especially difficult to win. There's mm-hmm. something called anti-slap legislation. 
Um, she, she talked to a couple people that work on defamation cases and said that, you know, this seems like it would be very difficult win because you have to prove very specific things that unless there's a smoking gun email saying, we are lying about this, essentially, you're going to have a really hard time. So I think my prior that this is settlement bait stands. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen anything yet to, to, um take a Jenga piece out of the tower of that belief. But that's, that's where I am. But it's a piece worth reading if you're interested in this. There's a nice long section in the middle of this piece too, about how he's, Jay Asher is definitely not the first man who's been accused of this kind of stuff to sue for defamation since the Harvey Weinstein things and the Mm -hmm. Me Too movement um, really started. And Lila does a nice job of breaking out some of those specific examples, but also in the bigger picture, like what is going on here and where is the law versus where we want responses to these things to be in 2019 and it's definitely worth a read um that reminds me this is it was kind of a blip of a story we didn't get to but it's related to to me too stuff and publishing is google refused to hand over the names of the people who anonymously um contribute to the um expletive media men list Mm -hmm. yes Um, yeah i think we mentioned that and they decided did we mention Mm -hmm. okay good i'm glad we did I, i wanted to make sure so if you heard it twice well twice is nice um Let's get to uh, ancient lore follow-up. All right. Well, the land of ancient lore is no more, or it's at least on hold, because there are now concerns about traffic, noise, and the environmental impact that this will have in Knoxville. Um, Tom Boyd, that's his name. Um, Mm -hmm. His controversial plan is going to be, it was supposed to be, but it was now it's no longer going to be up for a vote um, at the February 14th meeting of the Knoxville Knox County Planning meeting um the let's see there was a sector plan amendment and rezoning for his 37 acre property it was on their agenda but it's postponed um at the applicant's request um because they're fielding these concerns about like where are the people going to go how are their cars going to get there where are they going to park how is this going to impact the environment um there was a hearing held um at ye old steakhouse in Knoxville, Tennessee, largely attended by Boyd's neighbors, a third of whom were against, a third of whom were for, and a third were neutral, according to a show of hands. It's a very small-time um, moment. Wait, was it actually called you, you, Ye Old Steakhouse? Yes, it's Ye Old <laughs> Steakhouse. Um, so it's the you know it's who has jurisdiction because it lies in unincorporated uh, in the unincorporated county. <laughs> Uh, of course, if there's some does. backlash from a group called Keep the Urban Wilderness Peaceful, um, which has a Facebook page. Okay. So good on them. Uh, it is, I don't know, I feel like, who are the who are the people that do like Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show? I feel like there's oh, a mockumentary. Guest, yeah. Yes. There's a mockumentary here mm-hmm. uh, about trying to open up a... Um, an ancient lore village theme park in your backyard in the middle of Tennessee where the jurisdiction is uh, murky at best. A little unsure <laughs> what's going on with ancient lords. I, I don't know if this got more... I wonder how this happened. Like, why is it... They, I guess they needed... I guess what happened is they needed to go before the zoning commission mm-hmm. and get a vote. But prior to that, they apparently had heard some concerns and had this hearing and they realized they were not prepared for a tussle about this. I think um, Mr. Boyd thought he could do whatever he wanted. And maybe there was some uh, security by obscurity and that people didn't know he was going to do, but suddenly there wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and suddenly, suddenly he had to answer for like, what's going to happen to traffic or the environmental impact studies or all the things like that. Um, that if it's, if there's a chance it's going to be popular, you have to think about, it. you can't just like have a theme park in the middle of nowhere without thinking about, it. you know, traffic lights and all the sorts of things. Can the sewer systems hold it? Blah, blah, blah. You, you can tell that I live with an architect. That developers, <laughs> I was, like, I guess, I was thinking this. this got very detailed. <laughs> yeah, very detailed all of a sudden. But you you just can't pop up ancient universes because, you know, you've got a backhoe and nothing better to do. That's what we learned here. <laughs> backhoe and nothing better to do is a good show title. Yeah, pretty good show title. Um, so I'm not sure there's anything else here. I'm, I am sorry to say that... Um, you know, we probably I, won't have much. I don't I, think we're going to have more stories about the ancient Lord village. That's I hope my guess that they here. figure it out so that our voluntary Knoxville correspondents can go investigate for us. <laughs> yeah, um, mm-hmm. but I'm also skeptical. Yeah, skeptical too. 
All right. Well, we'll keep you up to date on the ancient lore village. Uh, my spidey sense is saying there shall be no more updates, but uh, lore is long and life is short. And we'll see how we go here. Let's do another sponsor. Hey, this is sponsors us. The sponsor is coming from inside mm-hmm. the podcast. We're giving away a hundred dollar gift card to Amazon in support of our swords and spaceships newsletter. It comes out weekly about all things sci-fi and fantasy. You can sign up for the newsletter at bookriot.com slash SFF giveaway to be entered to win the $100 gift card. You'll hear on that newsletter about new science fiction and fantasy releases, industry news, backlist recommendations, and much more. We have a lot of genre newsletters to give you. you know, we, we pump out some interesting stuff here at Book Riot, but not everyone's interested in every kind of book. So if you like Science fiction and fantasy, we've got a newsletter to you. I should also say we have newsletters about nonfiction, about romance, kids lits, YA, audiobooks, mystery thrillers, and so on. But this is the one you want if you're into science fiction and fantasy. Again, that's bookriot.com slash SFF giveaway. There'll also be a link in the show notes. You know, there's some rules about the giveaway to make sure you're in the right jurisdiction, so on and so forth, because of law. Um, but go check that out. Thanks to us for sponsoring us okay okay <laughs> um this is a ten thousand word piece and i probably have just as many words about it. i, I read <laughs> it i finished say. it uh this morning I did, i've read it I, yeah i read the whole thing i was gonna read it a second time and make notes but that did not happen <laughs> it is a wild story and i guess what we should do is like summarize the nut of it and then if there's any other issues that we want to talk about on top of it. So Dan yes. Mallory, who is uses used the pseudonym pen name AJ Finn for the women in the the woman in the window, which has been been a huge hit. Sold a bunch of mm-hmm. books. Um, a movie starring Amy Adams is coming out next year. It's a big hit. Um, it's a big deal. And. I'm not sure. I think we talked about either we talked about him or uh, Riley Sager, which is some other dude that's using a name that mm-hmm. could be a woman, side eyeing the parasitic move that this crop of male authors are using to mimic the naming conventions that women mystery author thriller authors have used to try to get around patriarchal feelings about who should be writing mysteries and thrillers. Do I have that summed up? Mm-hmm. Like, we're like, this is a bad yeah. look. Don't do this. Like, yes. unless you have yeah. a... Yeah, we think we... Go ahead. I was saying, we, we talked, I think we talked about Riley Sager, but mm-hmm. we've talked about this phenomenon of like, that women writing mysteries and thrillers have had to use sort of gender neutral sounding names or um, abbreviate their names down to initials in order to attract readership or readers mm-hmm. trust um especially in this genre it's not unique to science or sorry it's not unique to mysteries and thrillers but no. it's more widespread there i think um, and we have had some notable side eye here also in our unusual suspects newsletter written by jamie canavase um for this phenomenon mm-hmm. and dan mallory writing as aj finn is one of the people that we have had side eye for it turns out our eyes were not far enough to the sides no on our eyes were looking straight Please. ahead or something I, I i don't know I, the nut of it i mean there's so much wild <sighs> stuff to get into i almost don't want to get into the details except if you're interested you should read this but basically the guy is a serial liar um that fabricated yes. parental deaths cancer diagnoses degrees uh, ex- work experience. As, yeah, posed as his own brother to send people emails about the tell. surgeries he was having. Yeah, it's like a... It is a wild story. It is a talented Mr. Ripley-level situation of bonkersness mm-hmm. made more interesting by the fact that he is known to be like a fan and potentially like <laughs> scholar. Maybe of, of Patricia, Patricia Highsmith. Highsmith. Right. Uh, um, Whew, it's. I mean, this is a bonkers banana pants, <laughs> like just a huge situation. I, I agree with your assessment that the most of the details of it are better discovered in this. I think really so. I think so. It reads well, like a thriller. It's. It does a really well reported, deeply researched piece by Ian Parker yes. in the New Yorker this week. It is worth the half hour that it will take you to read it, um, by far. But like. 
I guess from where we're sitting, and tell me if mm. you're if sitting in a different place than I am, the publishing industry's response to this, mm. or I guess like lack of response, is going to be the most interesting or one of the most interesting parts of it. Like this thing that some people are pathological liars and they use it to their advantage to you know have careers or romantic relationships or whatever right. like, to get ahead in life like that's a thing that happens but seeing it like happen in your own industry um, especially when it's an industry that produces stuff that goes out into the public mm. and then again like gains name recognition and public trust the way that an author's name does especially when it's been highly successful is like this is what I think is going to be um, very hairy. And Dan Mallory, A.J. Finn, is published by William Morrow, which yep. is a HarperCollins imprint. And in a sp statement to PW, William Morrow um, gave the same line that they gave The New Yorker, that they don't comment on the personal lives of their employees or authors, which in itself ignores all of the ways that this stuff came into the professional setting. Right. Um, of things that Daniel Mallory said to coworkers, lies he appears to have told to coworkers, like getting paid to do fancy jobs that he allegedly did not show up for. Um, <laughs> I don't get it. The next sentence is like the, and I'm combining now. This is a PW piece from this morning. The next sentence is even more interesting. Professionally, Dan was a highly valued editor, and the publication of *The Woman in the Window*, the number one New York Times bestseller out of the gate, and the best-selling debut novel of 2018 speaks for itself. Well, I think that statement also speaks mm -hmm. for itself in that William Morrow appears. The folks at William Morrow or the higher ups at HarperCollins, I don't know who, appear to have decided that the thing that matters here is that. His work was successful and the books sold well, and they are keeping his next book deal. The book is slated, I think, also to come out next year. So, so far, there is like a mountain of evidence from this Ian Parker New Yorker piece that Daniel Mallory is liar, liar, pants on fire. Right. And William Morrow seems to not care because he makes a lot of money for them. Cash them checks. I, here's the thing. There's nothing... There's no, it's not a talented Mr. Ripley situation and spoiler, because there's no violence here. Like he, he's not, Well, yeah. there's not, he lied about a bunch of different stuff. And the sum of those lies paints a portrait of a pathological liar that conned his way into certain jobs, it looks like, and lied to coworkers mm -hmm. and bosses about why he was missing work, you know, lied, stretched the truth about his own personal backstory to curry favor, attention, and sympathy but as far as I can tell, and again, I've read it once, I, I could go back with it. Is there anything that's on itself actionable? Like, I guess if Morrow wanted to, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, that's I it's mean, weird. I don't, it's very strange because it's, it's, this is not a Me Too story, right? This is like, well, and he so, lied right. to everyone. And also, it's so wild. there's... William Morrow has a dual relationship yeah. with Daniel Mallory because he worked for them as an editor, but then also they were his publisher and he was an author there. And that's an interesting piece of the New Yorker um, reportage as well, is that when the woman in the window went out for sale, basically no one wanted to buy it because apparently lots of folks in publishing had this sense that like Dan Mallory was maybe not on the up and up mm -hmm. um, and they didn't want to get involved with it. So William Morrow, like for reasons of their own determination, bought the book and published it. Presumably they thought that they could make it successful, which they did. But this was one of those things that like is kind of an uh, appears to kind of have been an open secret, yes. at least in some circles of publishing. Um, people like knew that he, uh, you know, suspected that he was lying, um, but never confronted him mm -hmm. about it. Other people experienced the fallout from it. Like, I don't know what William Morrow's employment policies are. But in most places, if you don't go to work, and then it's it turns out that the reasons you're not working turn out to be lies. You can get fired yeah, for that. Right. Like just in most in most places. Now, maybe the publishing deal stuff is affected by some of the, those clauses or the lack thereof that we were talking about <laughs> right. last week and that Morality we talked about before. Like maybe. Yeah. Right. Maybe they can't get out of their deal to publish him because they don't have something in the contract that would allow them to do that without opening themselves to getting sued. Mm -hmm. I want to be generous and assume that that's what's going on here. But like, I've been in publishing long enough now to see like, 
Simon and Schuster was going to publish whatever that guy, the horrible neo-Nazi guy, yeah. like they were going to publish his book last year until there was a huge backlash because they thought there was money to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would also not be surprised if that's what's going on here is like, well, the woman in the window continues to sell well. His next book is going to do well. Um, we're in it unless this becomes a big enough problem to have to get out. Of yeah. It. And again, it's it's the sum of the mid-level fab- lies, fabrications, half-truths, mm-hmm. whatever, as opposed to any any specific one thing. Like, you lied about a degree. Not great, but I don't know. That's You're not going to go to jail for that. Lied about having this this disease versus that disease, but it's the sum yeah. total of the whole thing that is well, wild. Like, and, like, legally actionable versus you could get fired right, for Right, that's what it, I mean. Is a, yes. I think, yeah, is a useful distinction, but this might amount, like... If there's a lot of evidence for these things, it might amount to legal, le- le- legally actionable fraud. That's what I'm perhaps. saying, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Um, there, there's Ab- one about like who he was. Let yeah. me just read this three sentence. I think that I think it describes the they knew it was going to happen, and, sort of sense of publishing. Also, but with mm-hmm. the, the crazy sense of craziness. So he says, this is Ian Parker yeah. writing the first person. I recently called the senior editor at a New York publishing company to discuss the experience of working with Mallory. My God, the editor said with a laugh. I knew I'd get this call. I didn't know if it would be you <laughs> or the FBI. So yep. like that suggests that they knew this was a crazy case, but not how crazy. Because you could, the, someone will make up stuff like this. Who knows what else they'll do if they're going to lie about stuff? Who knows if they're conning specific people there's also cases that you could make about some plagiarism here and borrowing work mm-hmm. and other places like woman well, no, no, let's be honest i haven't read the book i should put that in the front but i've read the synopsis and it's a ripoff of rear window i'm sorry it is the the hitchcock you know mm-hmm. basically the the main character has agoraphobia and she's in this harlem brownstones and she thinks she mur- sees a murder happen all i have to do is switch out um, uh, Jimmy Stewart and broke it in his house because he broke his leg versus mm-hmm. agoraphobia and it's the same premise this New York apartment where you're looking out the window he's using the name mm-hmm. so that I guess people don't know it's him but also yeah. to leverage this other like and a mystery thriller genre that I'm not really a part of it's just the whole thing is gross but like it's like do 10,000 feathers make a brick it's what it kind of feels like to mm-hmm. me and it's like I feel like yes and no well, and- and in the piece, um, Ian Parker notes that the woman in the window, I also have not read it, acknowledges a debt to Rear Window. It makes the main character, Anna Fox, a fan of noir what? movies and Hitchcock. Okay, sure. And that right. Dan, yeah, sure. Yeah. And that Dan Mallory has also referred a few times to the girl on the train. Mm-hmm. Um, but he hasn't apparently acknowledged any influence of Copycat, which was a thriller from 1995, a movie set in San Francisco that stars Sigourney Weaver and Holly Hunter and several yeah. um, big details and plot points from copycat appear in the woman in the window um so at the very least there's some like um creative borrowing yeah it's at best i could think you say it's a transformer of work and that it's a collage of other similar kinds of uh, of books (laughs) it's a it's a wild case i guess what i was going to ask you does this amount to anything more than rubbernecking at a car wreck you know, I think it should. Okay. Like, I think that this, I think it should amount to Dan Mallory getting fired and his book deals mm. being canceled. I also think that if this were a woman who turned out to be lying about, you know, parents that she was caring for that were dying of cancer and illnesses that she had and then turned and then was found out to be mm. lying that that woman would not have a job and probably also would not have book deals um like this is the kind and if that if it was a person of color if dan mallory were a black guy also i think he mm. would have gotten fired like this is a thing that you get away with when you're a good-looking charming white guy who happens also to have been lucky enough to sell a whole lot of books and made himself valuable to his publisher. So I think it should be something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, though, expected to be disappointed about that. I think it will not be much. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I was, I think I was saying on the insider Slack this morning that like, I don't think that the publisher is going to have to do anything about the book deals unless this rises to the level yes. of like outside, the, uh, you know, industry or attention outside the publishing industry mm-hmm. um, where average readers, you know, the casual reader would have a chance to find out about it and decide they don't want to buy AJ Finn's next book. But I also like would not be surprised if it went the other way and this turned into a publicity thing. Like if it turns out that uh. Daniel Mallory gets an interview on the Today Show to talk about this whole thing like i wouldn't be shocked or he writes um, a book called point, my two-faced life and then there's a version of this right. story where he's playing him right. or matt damon is playing him uh-huh. playing oh, playing uh, the talented mr ripley playing uh, mm-hmm. and so yeah i don't know like i'm trying to think of it from the from the skin of the game kind of level like do i does this affect me or do i think this has ramifications i think if i worked at morrow or was a colleague of him now or in the past or future I would mm-hmm. be flaming mad. But that's also kind of not my business, yeah. right, for my chair. I think the thing that, that takes away from me is, one, it's a fascinating story. I highly recommend it. You read it on your, just for pure entertainment's sake. Link in the show notes. Like, it's a while. Like, we were reading it almost in real time. Like, DM each, or people were mm-hmm. DMing in Slack channel. Like, did you see this piece? And there's this thing about the cups of urine. And, like, I'm literally not making that up. Um, the other piece is the top level which kind of goes back to our initial shade about like using this women's strategy to circumvent patriarchy to sell books interesting that it happened here and also that paula hawkins and gillian flinner name checked like do you need to do that anymore like that's another thing it's like Mm -hmm. i wonder about that tactic or you know like the the two most successful book the, both those books are more successful than Women in the Window I think at this point I mean Girl on the Train was a crazy book and Gone Girls was a crazy selling book too but there's something about taking on the other personality that I now I, I think I said it's like this is now a warning sign for me if you run it right under a pseudonym for no good reason that's like I'm checking that off my list of like watch out for this person like some people mm-hmm. need to write under a pseudonym you're a whistleblower. You're a woman writing in a quote-unquote historically man's genre. You're a person of color. You're using it to just, if you're trying to um, circumnavigate bias, by all means, go ahead and do it. But in this case, there's like the piece that I didn't get at the beginning. I understand now is like he likes to make up stuff. He likes to do it. Mm-hmm. He likes to make up stuff yeah. and oh, then yeah. you wonder it's if fun. it's true or like believe it's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, clearly from this piece this is a person who like gets off on yeah. getting away with the thing um and i'm fresh off the fire festival documentaries on netflix <laughs> so i'm like you know it, my it's like a double t- tinfoil hat about everything i think you know i really think that this should matter and when you mentioned if you were somebody that worked in william morrow yeah. that you would have to care about that like employers are responsible for the environment that they mm-hmm. create for the people who work there and like maybe this is a question for our lawyer birdies, but like if this, if a story like this with this much evidence comes out about a person who works in your office and your employer continues to employ that person, what kind of environment does Mm -hmm. that create for you? And can you take action against your employer? Cause I, I feel like, I mean, I'm, uh, I don't know if, if this happened in our office and you were like, you guys were going to keep, the big liar guy, I would probably be in a situation of like, well, if you're keeping him, I'm leaving. That's and what I would like, think. I mean, it would be impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York's a right to work state. So unless he has some other kind of contract, like you could fire him for whatever reason, like you don't even need that much. Yeah. Of a reason. Like this is, I mean, I think it's a case of like, we are seeing in the same way that we saw um, Simon and Schuster make that decision. Um, we're seeing what like sort of the first blush values mm-hmm. that the publisher has are. Now, also the story is only like 48 hours yep. old at the time that we're talking about it. And maybe the publisher needs more time to get their legal team together and like do a thing and make a bigger statement or make some bigger decisions. Like that could have all changed by the time this show comes out on Monday. Yeah. Um, but I think this really should be a thing that has consequences. Um, I will be unsurprised, but disappointed if it doesn't. I mean, the the frust I mean there's a lot of frustration the frustrating point is he li- he got it worked it worked mm-hmm. he got all the way to executive editor at Morrow and the big best selling book with a movie adaptation and no matter what happens I mean unless he defraud I mean I don't know how I don't know how the he could get his royalties claw back I don't see how that 
what happened because the book is the book and it's fiction and whatever i guess unless right. it's true if you prove it's plagiarized or something which is very hard to do and whatever like it worked like even if he gets fired tomorrow and he never publishes another book he's sitting on his big pile of money like i just that mm-hmm. that's the part of the it's like it, it worked all the way to the you know yeah, a worldwide million seller list. i just can't it, believe it that's it's a pretty outstanding example of something like this working or extraordinary example of something like this working. But I think it worked on the baseline level because he seems to have preyed on like the fact that people tend yes. to be trusting. Like if you tell me you're missing work because your mother is dying of cancer, most people are not going to go straight to Google. Yeah, to see no monster is going to call your hospital. I mean, they're not going to do it. Right. Right. So, like, it was Googleable. You could discover very easily that his mother was alive. But who does that? <laughs> who does it? Who is like you know? I mean, un- unless you are behaving as suspiciously as he. Well, eventually I don't want to tip too much, but like authors that you've heard of hiring maybe private investigators to look into him. Like this mm-hmm. is all. This is it's it's a roller coaster thrill ride. This story. Like I can't. I don't want to ruin it, but I need to hype it up so you'll go check it out. Um, good job to Ian Parker. I said an amazing story. Clearly, yeah. deeply researched and um worked on over several months a lot of contacts the the open secret part and he's still at a job and like the part where he has that ripley thing of like he's good looking and he is suave and he's a performer and he's funny Mm -hmm. and he's a good writer like even from the early stuff that turns out to be false like he was a good writer and the combination of that with nefarious purposes and a willingness to fabricate can take you places i mean i guess you don't have to look Mm -hmm. too much farther than the white house for that for um well i mean it's not dissimilar like it's not dissimilar i just had not yet made that connection fabrications and aggrandizement and not telling the truth and being in it for yourself like sometimes and then being enabled by power sometimes it works um and that's the part that i don't know I guess that's please. I guess that's why. I guess that's why. Yeah. we care? I guess uh, ultimately, it's a story of like getting away with it, right? Whereas Ripley is. Well, and it, I mean, it's like of, a you know, right. Yeah. This is just a, it's a huge violation of the social contract, right, yeah. if nothing else, um, and that bears discussion. Please read it, listeners. We'll have a link to the New Yorker piece in the show notes, and let us know what you think. Yeah. Podcast at bookriot.com. So I had little birdie um, from someone who works at Harper Collins say even ah. before that like knowing this was out say i can say that as an employee of harper collins i am not sorry this came out take that for, mm. for what you will interesting very interesting. very interesting so where would you like to go well should we do our last should sponsor we? here and yes. then we'll do some potpourri okay. Our last sponsor this week is Every Plate. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with Every Plate, which is America's best value meal kit. Every Plate dinners are the cheaper, healthier, healthier alternative to takeout or to delivery. Other dinner options cost around $10 a serving, but Every Plate offers five chef-designed recipes each week for only $4.99 a serving. One meal at $4.99 is the same price as that cup of coffee or, you know, fancy latte that you buy every day. Um, So little switch there can get you some dinner convenience and deliciousness. Every plate's recipes are easy to follow. They come together in about half an hour so you can get more time to enjoy the food, hang out with your family, and you'll never have more ingredients than you need because the recipes come with everything already pre-measured. Every plate does the meal planning, they do the shopping, they do the prepping for you, and it takes the time, the stress, and the guesswork out of cooking. And like I cook a lot. It's that guesswork that I think can be the most stressful sometimes. I was checking out the uh, the every plate website i know we have some sample meals on the way um, but the weekly menu plan for this week looks delicious they have um oh mm. i should mention they have options for omnivores for vegetarians or for um gluten-free there may also be a let me double check while i'm looking at it um omnivores vegetarians and gluten-free options are possible i'm looking at the omnivore one which includes skillet apple pork chops chicken fajitas swedish spiced meatballs chicken sausage and tomato soup and dijon butter steak which looks delicious so you can check out what's coming up this week you can tell them do you want a two-person plan or do you want a four-person plan um what is your you know what are your eating habits or your dietary restrictions and then 
you will get three recipes a week um, coming to your door. You get to pick which plans, which menus from the plan you're getting. Hmm. Uh, so lots of great options. It's a super clean, easy, navig- easily navigable website. I am really looking forward to trying out a couple of these. For six free meals across your first three weeks and free shipping on your first delivery, if you want to try them out with me, go to everyplate.com and enter the code BOOKRIOT6. That's the number six. Um, This offer equates to getting one third off each of your first three boxes. So go to everyplate.com and enter the code BOOKRIOT6 and cook your way to some tasty convenience. I think this is where we should go next after that Mallory story. A nice piece, um, I should say better than nice piece in Bustle. Um, called mm-hmm. How Ten Women of Color Actually Feel About Working in Book Publishing by Wendy Liu, appeared last week. I think it came right as we were finished recording last yes. week. Um, so it's kind of between, but highly worth doing. So um, Liu interviewed 10 women of color working in publishing and to talk about the realities. I think it looks like this came out of that same um, salary and job survey we talked about. You know, mm-hmm. she uses, uh, Liu used a lot of the same statistics coming out of there about how few women of color there are, how you know, um, the, the numbers are pretty grim. Um, and I'm not sure what to say. I think what struck me as a back to back with the Mallory thing is how easy working in publishing was for Mallory, how easy it was to, Mm -hmm. to sort of climb the ladder or jump the ladder or, you know, cut out sections in the middle of the ladder so he could skip it, whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. ladder metaphor you want to use as opposed to the difficulty of being a woman of color um, in publishing where you, you know, in one case, you're the only person of color in your 20 person editorial team. That's one experience that relate here. Um, whether you're being tokenized because, you know, if there's a book about Chinese culture and you happen to be the only Chinese person in the company or Chinese American, everyone looks to you to tell you it's cool or not cool or whatever. Um, that, you know, a lot of the people working in the junior levels can't afford to take those low paying jobs. Um, I, I encourage you to read the book. I don't think, I'm not sure there's anything that came as news here, but it does matter when you hear specific named testimonials of people's experience. It was really powerful to me uh, to read, you know, these are not women I've heard of, you know, uh, um, there's, let's say, uh, Claire Yee, um, she's 26. She worked at a small academic publishing company based in San Diego. So, you know, there's people like this working all parts of publishing that you and I have never heard of, but they're part of the larger public ecosystem. And it's just hard out there. It just is hard. And I think reading this really brings that home outside of the stats Mm -hmm. that you're going to read on Publishers Weekly. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a really thoughtful and important piece because it it's one thing to look at the stats and to be upset about the numbers or upset about the overall direction that publishing seems to be going in or the lack of care that can sometimes seem to be applied to really getting behind making the publishing workforce more diverse and inclusive. Um, but hearing, like grounding those numbers in actual people's examples and remembering that it's this is not, these aren't just numbers that we're trying to move in the right direction in order to do the right thing. We're trying to do the right thing in publishing because real people are impacted by all of the steps of that along the way. Um, And I agree with you, like none of it's really surprising. It's the kind of disappointing, unsurprising stuff that um, that happens to people when an industry Mm -hmm. um, has issues with gender equity and with racial inclusivity and all kinds of other things. Um, But hearing them, hearing the particular details of people's experiences, I think, always brings it back home. So this is why it's important to pay attention. And um, I really want to applaud the women who spoke yes. with Wendy Liu and who went on the record um, to tell these stories. That's really tough um, when you know that either current or past coworkers or employers might read them and it's a bold move. Um, so thank you for doing that. Thank you. And doing, um, yeah. Indeed. Okay. Um, hmm. Cool tech thing. I, I thought okay. I put this in the Slack saying I think this is the first semi interesting like use your oh I don't want to your um, dingus your your voice command technology puck um, to do something with books. <laughs> well, because you know if I say it, it'll trigger it for people. I do. Yeah. I do. I was just wondering what the euphemism was. <laughs> what what be today. was gonna? I was gonna vamp a euphemism. <laughs> vamp a euphemism is a great show title. Um, <laughs> so you can now listen to an interactive choose your own adventure audio book with voice-activated technology puck uh, that comes from Amazon, Mm -hmm. Um, that one. Um, Using Audible's narrators, 
you can basically do it. You know, they'll read it to you and then you say, you know, puck, open, choose your own adventure. And a narrator will begin to read from the book. You reach a decision point. They ask you what to do. And you say to the puck, this is what I'd like to do, puck. And they'll keep a tally of how far you've made it, just like a choose your own adventure, encouraging you to go through it over and over again. I'm going to road trip the snot out of this with my kids um, on our spring break yes. road trip. I think this is a great idea for a road trip, by the way. So there, that's all I've that's got. Those are my thoughts. Fun. All right. Yeah, this is the first, in, I agree, first interesting use of interactive technology on these sentient pucks. <laughs> <laughs> What's not clear to me is, I guess you. Have, I mean, you've got to pay for it. It's. Like, I don't really know how this works because it's a puck. It's called a puck, capital P skill, and it's not puck. It's the other word. Um, yeah. And I do you have to buy it? I don't. You open the story by saying puck, open, choose your own adventure. But am I buying that, or is it just? I don't get it. I don't get what's going. What's yeah. what's the value? Is it just getting me to use my puck? So I'll recommend pucks to other people. I'm, I'm not sure. Not sure. Yeah, it's branded as an Audible product, and I'm looking at a piece about it on Audible, but th- there's not a yeah. way to. Um, I should try. I should have tried not it before a way to this. Buy it. I'll find out. Yes. I'll do some homework. I'm going to try this. We could just we could do a live example <laughs> and set everyone's pu- I don't, pucks I don't, fire. I have my pucks at home. It's not here sitting next to me. <laughs> also, do you have a puck? I don't. Do this any- is like my one. It's my tinfoil hat moment of tech oh. resistance. I don't have. I don't have a voice command. Tech, sentient technology um it's half te- it's really like a half tinfoil hat thing mm-hmm. and all, the other half is that i am an apple ecosystem person yeah. and bob is a google ecosystem person and we don't want the amazon ecosystem device mm. um so we can't really agree about if we were to have a sentient puck which one we would have and it i just don't i don't know and perhaps if I see one in action, I will be compelled. But there's not much that I do in my day that I feel like I need voice command. Yeah, the for. thing we, the, really, the only thing we use our puck for is that the kids can voice command music, you know, without having to use our phone or whatever. Mm-hmm. They can listen to, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that would be great. Shake it off by kids, bop kids, and you know, do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I think so. If you've that tried, pretty if adorable. you've tried the, if you try the choose your adventure with your puck, or if you've used your your um your Amazon Puck or your Google Puck or your Apple Puck for book-related things. I'd like to know about that if you found one that you really like. I know you can do audio audible books through them, but listening to an audible mm-hmm. book on my speaker in like my living room or kitchen is not something I do. I, it's a headphones or in the car. I, it's not do, that's but if other people do that I'd Same. like to know. I'd like to know about those mm-hmm. things. Where are we? Well, we know the shower audiobook people now. They are widespread because I heard from them oh. after our write-in episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm now one of those people because of my Bluetooth speaker oh, that's are. totally not a sponge. Mm-hmm. I definitely have always known Bluetooth speakers <laughs> and showers are not sponges. Did we tell that story I don't on remember. air or was that just I don't, a private I, I discussion? I don't remember. It's possible I was at a friend's house staying with them and in their shower and I thought their their Bluetooth speaker was a loofah. I didn't wash yep. myself with it, but I was close. I was like, why is there a big plus minus on this loofah? <laughs> I'm not a smart person. Oh, boy. You know. Oh, I would beg to differ, uh, Jeff. Let's see. I think that's a show. I can't do this other one. Maybe next week. I don't have the... I'm out. No. I'm out. I'm out of juice. All right. Uh, email us, podcast at bookride.com. We would like to know little birdies of all kinds are welcome, HarperCollins, legal or otherwise. And then also if you've used your puck for book things. Tell us your experiences. And I'm so sorry for all of you out there who have been car sick now or in the past. Audiobooks are web. Oh, I forgot a follow-up thing. There were books on tape subscriptions in the 80s. We got some people telling us that they would mm. subscribe to books on tape, and they'd send you the whole book on tape in the mail. It was $15 a month. Um, and let's just say some people had some creative pri- piracy, you know, making copies of tapes to share with their friends um, of this. I thought it was d- a delightful uh, minor misdemeanor piracy back in the 80s goes all the way back but there were things that you could get a subscription book on tape which now seems hilarious but if there's nothing else it didn't seem that bad all right rebecca next week we'll talk to you all right have a good one jeff 